You know, Gail and I watched a conversation unfold one day that was unexpected but really uh, intriguing. My mom and dad love to watch birds, and so they have a glassed-in back porch, and they've got bird houses and bird feeders and a bird bath there in the backyard, and the birds come in and out. And it was one hot summer morning. Remember those? I mean, it was just this really hot morning, and Gail and I were sitting on the porch, and we were watching the birds, and there was this tiny little finch who flew in and landed right there on the edge of the bird bath. Now, that's not an exact picture of that day, but this is just kind of for an idea of what it looked like. So there is this little finch. We'll call her Tiffany, okay? And she landed on the side of the bird bath, and she just put her little beak down in the water and took a couple of sips. It was all very sweet, very nice. There was Tiffany. All right, about that time, this robin, this menopausal robin came flying in. We'll call, we'll call her Gladys. If that's your middle name or something, I apologize. But we're going to call her Gladys. Well, she plopped down right in the middle of the birdbath. I mean, this was not like a seaplane landing. This was like the Apollo 13 splashdown, right? She just plopped down right in the middle of the birdbath. And we had seen birds do this before. Where they would kind of land in the water and splash their wings a little bit and kind of freshen up. She just started flapping her wings everywhere. I mean, she had feathers sticking out. She was a mess, and she's just going wild. Like for 10 seconds, water is just splashing all over the place. Here's little Tiffany getting drenched in the process, okay? Now, we're inside. There's glass. We can't hear anything, but when Gladys finally settles back down, Tiffany chirped a couple of times. We could see her little beak move, you know, and we couldn't hear it, but I think she said something like, um, ma'am, excuse me, you're getting my book wet. Would you mind not splashing me, please? And I'm not kidding. Gladys looked over at her and went, bah! I mean, like that. She just opened her beak and just screamed at that poor little Tiffany. Tiffany flew away, you know, she was rattled. Gail and I were just on the floor laughing. It was absolutely hilarious. Now, now granted, no words were exchanged in that moment. But I'm telling you, conversation happened, right? There was communication that took place in that moment. Listen to me. Words, words are incredibly powerful. Communication is incredibly powerful. With words, we wage wars, and with words, we declare love, right? With, with words, our hearts can soar, and words have led people to suicide. Some of you have been so wounded by words in the past. We've talked about that before. There are labels from the past that people have given to us over the years, maybe decades ago, that still haunt us. Things like you're lazy or you're stupid or you're ugly or, or you're fat. You know, you're a failure or you're a phony or you'll never amount to anything. And the reality is sometimes labels have a, a seed of truth there. That's why they hurt so much, and, and I get that. But other times labels are given just out of jealousy or envy or bitterness or just plain old hatred. The reality is sometimes we give labels to ourselves. We get a report card or we get a, a job review or we look in the mirror or we step on the scales and we don't need anybody else to tear us down because we can handle that all by ourselves. Labels can be devastating because words are so powerful. Well, we're going to talk this morning about a, a woman in the Bible who had a label. In fact, we don't even know her name. We only know her label. And it's not an attractive one. It's not the kind of thing that you want to be known for. Scripture tells us that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
So mostly we call her the adulterous woman. That's her label. I mean, you mention that to anybody who knows anything about the New Testament. You talk about the adulterous woman, they go, oh, that's the woman in John chapter 8 that was there with Jesus. The adulterous woman. But what I find interesting is that that's the label we've held on to. That's what we call her today. It's her story. It's her point of identification. She slept with a man who was not her husband. And because the Bible calls it adultery and not fornication, we have to assume that either she was married to someone else or he was married to someone else or they both were. This sexual act was not just promiscuity outside of marriage. It was a violation of marriage vows. She was an adulterous woman. But my question is this. Who says we have to keep that label? I'd like to suggest that she deserves a name change. Other people in the Bible got one. I mean, why not her? See, what makes her story significant is not that she committed adultery. I mean, gosh, millions of people have done that to their shame. What makes her story so profound, what gives her life meaning, is what Jesus did about it. This is not a sermon about the adulterous woman. Not, not really. This is a sermon about a forgiven woman. It's a sermon about a redeemed woman, about a second chance woman, we might call her. And that's a label that makes much more sense to me. I'd a whole lot rather talk about that label. Let's call her what she deserves to be called. Not because she's so special, but because Jesus is so awesome. He gave her a second chance. He decided that her identity, listen, her identity was not defined by her adultery. Her identity was not defined by her worst failure. Now, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let me show you how the story unfolds in Scripture. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 8. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus finds himself in an awkward situation. He's right in the middle of a sermon when these religious leaders come into the temple and they're dragging this half-clothed woman who's probably crying. She's resisting. Maybe. We don't know. It says they made her stand which suggests that maybe at first they threw her down in front of him and then they made her stand up. I mean, in their eyes, she's this worthless sinner who is deserving of death. Now, in the Old Testament, it's true that adultery was considered a capital offense. But these guys with rocks in their hands were ready to, to set themselves up as judge, jury, and executioner without so much as an attempt to understand her life or her pain. Oh, we caught her in the act. She's guilty. Let's kill her. You know, it's not too easy to catch somebody in the act of adultery unless you happen to live in the same house as one of them or they're really careless about where they commit the act. It's not really all that likely. It's why a lot of people think that maybe a trap was set here. I mean, let's face it, where's the man? Why didn't they drag him before the crowds? The law of Moses says that they're both guilty. Maybe he was in on the trap. Maybe he was a noted man in the community and they didn't want to embarrass him. Maybe he just put up too much of a fight and he wasn't worth the effort. These guys weren't looking for justice anyway. This woman and her sin meant nothing to them. She was a piece of meat. She was an insignificant pawn in a much larger game. This wasn't a trial for her. It was a trap for Jesus. 
What would Jesus do? The quintessential WWJD. If he set her free, he'd be violating the law of Moses. If he said stone her, well, that would not exactly uh, reinforce his reputation as a friend of sinners. Besides, the Roman government did not allow Jews to execute anybody. It's why the Pharisees had to get the Romans to crucify Jesus. If Jesus said stone the woman, he would have been violating the Roman laws. He would have probably been arrested for inciting a riot. So they thought they had him between a rock and a hard place. Or between a handful of rocks and a hard place. Pick up in the middle of verse 6. It says, Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. See, these guys are pressing in around Jesus. They're backing him into a corner. They're eager to hear which wrong answer he's going to give so they can pounce on him, just waiting to see. But Jesus doesn't say anything. Instead, he bends down and he starts writing in the dust with his finger. And a lot of people have speculated about what he was writing. Interestingly, the Greek word that's used here is not the typical word for writing. John, who wrote the gospel, put a prefix on the word kata so that it says literally to write against. Who was he writing against? Well, probably not the woman because of the reaction of the men. He's probably in some way addressing the sins of these accusers. Maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he's writing sins and he's naming names. We don't know for sure, but he's writing something and he's giving them the opportunity to see his point and to change their tune, but they refuse to back down. They're not getting the hint. They keep questioning him. So he stands up, looks them in the eye and says, okay, fine, stoner, but let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And suddenly there's something fair about a level playing field. No longer is Jesus facing a sinful woman, he's facing a sinful crowd. And these guys at least had enough integrity to know that. I mean, sure, they made a living deciding who was good and who was bad, who was respectable, and whose sins weren't respectable, whatever that means. But deep down inside, they all knew that they weren't perfect. They were all guilty of something. And friends, that's a really good thing to remember when you find yourself staring at someone else's sin and picking up rocks. We are all in the same boat. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, it's what makes verses 10 and 11 of our text so powerful. It says, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Now there's a couple things I want you to notice about this. First of all, Jesus says, I do not condemn you. He did not say that to the religious leaders. He didn't say to them, now look guys, look, we're all sinners. I mean, let's just live and let live. Nobody's perfect. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, really, who are we to judge somebody else's sin? I don't condemn anybody. We're all good. No, he didn't say that at all. He confronted their sinfulness, and he let them walk away to think about it, but he actually freed her from her guilt. He specifically said to her, I do not condemn you. And I think it's safe to assume that he looked in her heart. He knew there was a whole lot more going on in there than was going on in the hearts of these religious leaders. She was hurt. She's broken. She's ashamed. She's sorry. 
And it's that broken spirit that draws his attention. Basically, he says to her, you know what, we're good. Now, I don't know if you've seen this in your Bible or not, but most Bibles have a footnote with this story that says something like the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7:53 to 8:11. Now, what does that even mean? Is this just some made-up story that some scribe inserted later on? Did it even happen at all? Well, let me give you some background on that because I think it makes the story even more compelling. You probably know that we do not have the original manuscript that John the Apostle wrote. We have copies, but not the autographed original, you know, Gospel of John. It's probably a good thing. You know, we're so crazy about stuff. Somebody somewhere would have it in a shrine and people would be bowing down and worshiping it. And so we don't have the original, but we have these ancient copies that have been passed around from believers from the first centuries uh, into the early, early centuries. They were, it would be hand-copied. According to William Barclay, six of the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel do not include this story. Two of those six actually have an empty blank space where the story should have been. One early manuscript records the story, but it's not the best of the early manuscripts. There's one early historian named Papias who lived just after John's time, and he talked about this very story, and he mentioned it in church history. Many of the early church fathers don't reference this adulterous woman at all, but one of the most respected of them, Augustine, says this story was removed from the text. He said it was removed to, quote, avoid scandal. In other words, this story was a dangerous story, and it was too hot for many of the early church folks to handle. Some people were afraid it made Jesus look soft on sin, that adultery in particular just maybe wasn't that big of a deal. Some church leaders were afraid that it made grace look too easy. See, the fact that this story is missing from some early manuscripts doesn't mean that it didn't happen. There's lots of verification for it. The fact is, it's missing tells us something about religious people. Not just the Pharisees, but kind of religious people in general. Grace can be hard for people to get their arms around. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with grace because it seems like it throws justice out the window. See, this is actually what makes the story of the second chance woman so important. Because Jesus said two things to her after the accusers went away. First he said, I do not condemn you. That's the scandalous part. That's the part that made everybody uncomfortable. The woman was obviously guilty. There's no question about that. She's caught in the act. And yet Jesus entirely and instantly removes her label. He says, I don't condemn you. But that's not all he said. He also said, go now, go now and leave your life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. He made it pretty clear that this woman's illicit behavior wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't like a one-time indiscretion. He didn't say, go now and never do it again. He said, go and leave your life of sin. It suggests that there was a sinful pattern to this woman's life. And it was time for that pattern to change. Now, was she going to be perfect from that moment forward? Of course not. But she would be different. I mean, she had to be different, right? Or this whole exchange would have been a waste of time. Billy Graham once said that repentance means being sorry enough to quit. Listen, Jesus doesn't condemn us for our sins. Like we saw in the video, there's a chance to be free from the past. 
But Jesus doesn't just leave us kind of wallowing in our sin either. He forgives the past, but he also challenges us to change the future. And all that worked out great for this sinful woman. Her past was forgiven. Her future's bright. This amazing news that Jesus gave to her took care of her guilt and her shame. And it's true for us, too, that we can start over, that God gives us second chances, tenth chances. He gives us hundredth chances. But, you know, there's something in this text and how liberating it must have been that this woman's guilt and shame was taken away. There's something else here on top of that that I think is maybe the most profound part of the story for us. Think about this. As far as we know, this woman did not leave her home and start traveling around with Jesus and the disciples and the others who were following him. We have no indication of that. She stayed right where she was. She stayed right there in this same city where she had been living, where she had been committing adultery. From this time on, she's that woman. She's the woman who wore the scarlet letter. Her sin has been on display for everybody to see. You don't get dragged out of bed with somebody else's husband, shoved half naked through the streets, thrown down in church in front of Jesus and all the religious leaders, you know, in front of God and everybody, without rumors flying all over town. Did you hear what happened at church today? What was it like for her to step back into society after this? How was she received at the temple? I mean, maybe her friends knew she'd been sleeping around. Maybe they didn't. How did they see her now? Did her family let her come home for Christmas? Was she allowed to babysit the nieces and nephews? Was she welcome at the Sabbath school picnic? Could she sing in the choir? Could she hand out bulletins? Could she join a small group? See, those might be some of the most important questions, I think, about this story. Not how did Jesus view her. He's pretty good at that stuff. How did everybody else view her after she had been forgiven. I mean, let's be honest. We, we see her mess. We understand the scandal. This sort of thing happens all the time. It's always in the news with somebody famous. Well, how quick we are to point a finger or pick up a rock might depend upon the bad things that we've done or the things we've been caught doing. I mean, let's be brutally honest. While we might feel bad about another person's situation, there's sort of a twisted logic that many of us have that says, you know, as long as people are talking about them and their sin, nobody's looking at me and my sin. So we're kind of glad that the pressure's off of us because it's on somebody else. Does this make any sense? And the adulterous woman, the second chance woman, her life became a testimony to God's grace. But the reality is there were a lot of other sinners in the temple that day. Every accuser with a rock in his hand had some kind of mess of his own. But as long as all eyes were on the woman who had just been dragged out of bed, they felt pretty good about themselves. Whenever you have a situation where one person's sin gets all the attention and everybody else feels innocent by comparison, that is not the kingdom of God. See, these religious leaders, they all had some kind of mess in their lives because we've all committed some kind of sin. And beyond that, I'm telling you, if you're the kind of person that sees somebody else self-destruct and your first response is to pick up a rock, that's a sin in itself because that is so opposite to the heart of God. Yes, we reap what we sow, and, and yes, there has to be justice and discipline in a civilized society, but when our first response is to throw rocks, we're missing the point of the gospel. Friends, our view of this woman and our view of ourselves pretty well shapes the foundational truth that we're going to take home today. Let's say, let's say, 
that you feel like this woman, this adulterous woman, this second chance woman. You've done something pretty awful and maybe lots of people know about it and your secret's out. There's no question you're guilty and your shame has been on display. And, and some of you can relate to that and, and I can relate to that. But there's this beautiful truth here, this freedom from the past that Jesus speaks. I do not condemn you. But Jesus also spoke of responsibility. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. So maybe you relate to her, but maybe deep down, if you were honest, you'd say you relate more to the religious leaders. You've never really done anything so bad that people point fingers at you or they pull their children in off the street so they stop being your friend. Your sins are more respectable than that. Confession time for you is things like, you know, I just work too hard taking care of my family. I just don't write enough encouraging notes. I worry that I don't do enough for God, you know, or I'm just so sensitive to other people's needs and it gets me into trouble sometimes. Like, yeah, there's people like that, I guess. Really, that's all you got. But I think most of us, most of us aren't there. Listen, the best life is not good enough and the worst life is not too far gone. That's the beauty of the gospel. Maybe... Maybe this woman in the crowd needed a little more grace than some of the others, but everybody in the crowd that day needed grace because we all need grace. I mean, she's the one who got it because she understood how bad she needed it. She received a pardon because she accepted how broken she was. So, so let me ask you right now, are you the adulterous woman or are you the rock-carrying religious person? Because both stand in need of grace. Both have messes that cannot be cleaned up without Jesus. But she received grace because she reached out for it. The best life is not good enough and the worst life is not too far gone. That's the bottom line today. The best life is not good enough and the worst life is not too far gone. And that's the good news of the gospel. I had a conversation several months ago with Lacey and Tyler Teske. Lacey and Tyler started coming here a year ago, and I baptized them back in April, and since then, man, they've just gotten involved in every aspect, every level of our church. They're not just church members. I mean, they're their family, to Gail and to me and, and to many of you here. So I had a conversation with, with them one day, and they opened up to me about some things that had happened in their lives and, and really some things that ultimately led them here. And so I asked Lacey, I said, do you think the time would ever come that you would be willing to tell your story, at least part of it? And she said she thought that it would. And so she's going to come and just share for a couple minutes here. And listen, she's not doing this because she likes talking about the darkest days of her life. It's because her story is a celebration of God's grace. And what she's about to do may be the gutsiest thing that any of us could ever do. But uh, I'm going to ask her to come and do that and then... Actually, we're going to pray, and then she's going to sing. And so, Lacey, give us a minute here. It'd be great. First of all, thank you for your time and letting me um, share a piece of our story. It was 2016, two days after Christmas, and I walked out on my husband and our two girls. I said I was unhappy and I needed my space. What I hadn't told him at the time was I had met someone else who I thought was making me happy. I also had a friend at the time, at least I thought was a friend, who told me, you don't 
you need to do what makes you happy. You don't need to try. You don't need to settle for making things work. You need to take care of yourself. Let me be the first to say, Satan disguises himself in many ways. Tries, he makes sin look good. He makes excuses sound good. He amplifies every small problem, and he is always on the prowl waiting to attack you. Not long after I moved out, I was moving in with this guy, thinking it was everything I had wanted and been missing. At first, everyone was in shock and would say, you all have the perfect marriage. What happened? Everything looks so great. And there was a time that Tyler and I even believed the same, that we thought we were unshakable, that you know nothing could happen to us. We believed in Jesus, but we let our guard down. And he wasn't at the center of our lives and marriage. I had grown up around divorce, and I told myself that would never be me. But Satan was in my ear constantly telling me to keep walking the other way. Tyler begged me not to go, but my mind was made up. About six months went by, and I couldn't shake this constant nagging feeling in my stomach. I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but how was I going to fix this? People would judge me, ridicule me, and my biggest fear, people would turn their back on me. I knew all too well how to mask my sins. I grew up in church and I learned early how to wear that mask. So that's what I did. Shortly after, I started going to one of the Southeast Christian campuses. No one knew me there. They, knew my, they didn't know my sins, my biggest secret. So I was living a lie the whole time. The sermons at Southeast started to peel back my identity. They started to reveal how broken I was, but also that God still loved me with my flaws and all. I didn't have to pretend with this God that I was learning about. I didn't have to have it all together to be wanted and cherished by him. It's like I was the adulterous woman standing in the middle of the crowd with Jesus, waiting for the world to condemn me for my sins. But then Jesus' words from John 8, 11 washed over me. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I never, I'll never forget the night that everything changed in me. I had just left a Saturday night service, and I felt the Lord tell me I needed to go home. I went to my parents' house and came completely undone. It was then that I realized Tyler was everything that I did want and need in a relationship. Tyler told me to come back home and we would fix things, and we slowly started to make things right again. But the truth is, I hadn't been completely broken. I hadn't hit my rock bottom like I thought. Without the next part of my story, I don't know if I would have embraced the second part of Jesus, of the verse, go and sin no more. On June 13th, 2017, I found out I was pregnant. There was only one person's it could be. Every emotion came over me while I was laying in the VA hospital. My life as I knew it would never be the same. What was I going to do? Should I tell Nick, the father? Should I go home to Tyler and just wait a few weeks and act like the baby is his? Should I go in hiding for the next year and give this baby up? Should I tell Tyler and we keep it a secret, or should I have this baby at all? The thoughts were endless, so I prayed. I prayed like I had never prayed before. It was then that God met me at my lowest of lows. Like that woman thrown down before Jesus in the temple, I was at my moment of deepest despair, and God met me right where I needed him most. What happened next has made my faith deeper and stronger than it's ever been before. I knew I couldn't keep this a secret. I knew I had to have this baby and keep it. I would have never been able to live with myself if I robbed Nick and his family of, joy, of their happiness and joy, something that they had longed for, a first child, a first grandchild. I realized God had chosen me to bring this, 
bring this child into the world, and I would spend the rest of my life learning why. So I told Nick and his parents, they were excited, of course, but there was also a lot of questions and some fear of the unknown. At the time, they didn't know that I was gonna go back home to Tyler. Next, I told Tyler and my parents, I can only imagine everything that was going through his head in that moment. More emotions came out, confusion, anger, sadness, and an even greater fear of the unknown. But Tyler decided in that moment that he wanted to make this work. And in that moment, I learned that he's one of the most exciting parts of my life. He didn't know where his strength was gonna come from, but he vowed to love me unconditionally and forgive everything I had done. His love kept no record of wrong, just as the Bible commands us. To this day, he loves me more than words could ever express. He's been my saving grace. He showed me in real life what Jesus' love was all about and what the cross truly means. He not only took me back, but opens his heart to love our son and even our son's extended family. I'd be lying if I didn't say there was a time when I wished things were different. I begged God to change it all and to take it away. I sobbed for him not to punish me with his pregnancy. But we know that the gift of our son is the platform for God's glory to shine. Elijah, is, Elijah was my second chance. From that time on, we have vowed to put Jesus at the very center of our lives and our marriage. We still make lots of mistakes. There's no perfect marriage, but we do it together, and we do it with love and grace. I tell you all of this so you can see my imperfections and know that grace and forgiveness are very real. My story is not exactly like yours, and you have your own trials and heartache, but I believe there is no mess too big to ask God to handle. You're not created to walk through this journey alone. And it makes me smile to know that Satan lost this battle. What he thought was going to be the end, God said, was just the beginning. The best life is not good enough. And the worst life is not too far gone. Let's pray. Oh God, we just praise you for your love and your grace. Every one of us could see ourselves standing in the temple that day surrounded by people with rocks. And the reality is every one of us deserves your condemnation. But you have showered us with your grace. And you have made this way open for us to find salvation in you. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you. And I just thank you, Lord, for transparency and honesty that we've heard today. And I thank you that we are family together through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.